Ink and Paint wishes to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded and edited. It is a great privilege to be able to tell stories on this land, which has a tradition of storytelling stretching back over 10,000 years. We also wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands from all over the world where our guests record from. We pay our respects to all elders past, present and emerging, and to our First Nations listeners. Mr. Disney, uh, will you tell us about making the picture? Well, Mr. Cott, our purpose was to see the wonders of South America through the eyes of a famous North American traveler. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> yes, Donald, that's you. Yeah, well, I seem to remember a little trouble with a rope bridge. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ink and Paint, a podcast journey through the Disney animated classics. I'm your host, Daniel Lamon. We're exploring one by one the films in the official Disney animated canon and talking about their artistic, historical and social context, where they come from, their impact and how they sit with us now. In our previous episode, the golden age of Disney animation came to an end with the artistic triumph and box office failure of Bambi. On this episode, we begin our journey through the wartime era of Disney animation, a period where history, politics and art converge with fascinating results. And nowhere is that clearer than with the first two films of this era, Saludos Amigos and The Three Caballeros. In the field of world policy... I would dedicate this nation to the policy of the good neighbor, the neighbor who resolutely respects himself and, because he does so, respects the rights of others, the neighbor who respects his obligations and respects the sanctity of agreement in and with a world of neighbors. During the 1930s, American businessman and future vice president Nelson Rockefeller travelled extensively on business through South America. He began to notice an increased presence of Axis powers on the continent, particularly Nazi Germany, and became concerned that the fascist government was establishing a strong foothold. In 1940, he brought these concerns to President Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Roosevelt appointed Rockefeller the new coordinator of inter-American affairs charged with overseeing a program that would establish a better relationship between the US and Latin America, providing them with financial, agricultural, educational and medical support, and fostering an exchange of culture and ideas. This good neighbour policy had been part of Roosevelt's plan for years, but the need to quell Axis powers in Latin America suddenly made it a priority. As part of their push for cultural unity and friendship with Latin America, Rockefeller appointed Francis Allstock and John J. Jock Whitney in charge of the film division. Their job was to encourage Hollywood studios to create films that might promote Latin American culture, at the very least adding a sense of Latin American atmosphere. They also coordinated tours of the continent from prominent Hollywood celebrities, but most seemed uninterested in cultural exchange and did only the bare minimum. It was for this reason that, on the 30th of October 1940, Roy Disney was approached by the CIAA to see if the studio could put some South American atmosphere in some of the short subjects in order to help the general cause along. 
In most cases, studios had not gone further than using generic Latin American locations and stereotypes without any specificity or understanding of South American cultural diversity. Walt Disney had a different approach. Almost immediately, the studio began an intense period of research, gathering material on the peoples and cultures of each of the Latin American countries to see if they could be infused with the Disney style. An agreement was drafted between the CIAA and Walt Disney Productions for 12 Technicolor short subjects on Latin America. Each episode in Income Paint, I'm joined by a special guest, not just film and animation enthusiasts, but people from all different professions. This week, I'm joined by award-winning comedy writer and performer, Joven Caro. Joven is best known as the creator of Lessons with Lewis, a family act of suburban oddballs, which has won numerous awards and acclaim through performances at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, including the Golden Gippo Award in 2012, numerous series on Melbourne's community television station Channel 31, and a highly successful online video series. Joven, welcome to Ink and Paint. Thanks for having me, Daniel. And you're the first guest I get to interview in act- in person, which know, is very is, strange. It's very strange. So strange. So tell our listeners a bit more about your practice as a comedy writer and a performer. Okay, this is the hard question because yeah. I always struggle to answer this, but I think I've distilled it to offbeat, awkward, whimsy character comedy with heart. I think that's what I do. I think that's what I spend most of my time doing. So, yeah, I've made I, – I spent – the last 10 years developing Lessons with Lewis, which is uh, an act of oddballs who always attempt to do showbiz but but sort of uh, fall short every time and that's where the comedy comes in. And tell us a bit more about Lewis because not only do have you are you the creator of Lewis and the writer of Lewis, you also perform Lewis. Yeah, I am Lewis. Lewis is the best and worst of me, I think. In so, what respects? In <laughs> a lot of ways. I think Lewis can be, I guess Lewis is a man-child who is fixated on this showbiz dream. So being famous, being on television, winning everything, doing all the things. Um, but he's also quite selfish and rude and arrogant. And uh, at the same time, Lewis is also uh, quite loving and, and naive, uh, I think that kind of encompasses all my interests and I, li- I, I like exaggerating all the sort of uh, what I can improve on as a person as well because, you know, I can be quite difficult when it comes to achieving showbiz <laughs> things. So, so, yeah. And where did he come from? He's just a collection of my favourite things as well as like my best and worst qualities, I think. So uh, I watched actually a lot of Daffy Duck and that kind of really? inspired me. Yeah. And then... Uh, I've, I keep saying I've been doing this for 10 years, which I have, uh, but around uh, six years in, I sort of started feeling a bit restless with the act. I kind of wasn't being surprised anymore by what I was doing. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to take a break. I took a break and just by chance, I just started watching a lot of Disney movies. Christina, my wife, she, she's a real, like, loves Disney movies. So we just started watching a lot of those. I can't remember which titles, but it's sort of inspired me to position Lewis as a character in a world rather than just a comedy act, like a singular performer. So to to keep inspired, I then started developing the other characters around Lewis a little bit more and I sort of found new excitement in the act. Well, that's one of the most enjoy. I find one of the most enjoyable things about the whole Lewis concept is the world of it of the fact that there are that you have such a well-defined easily 
uh, relatable character that is surrounded by well-defined, easily relatable characters within a world that makes complete sense with its own sense of logic, which seems like a very singular thing, certainly in Australian comedy. I mean, you have comedy in the US and the UK that kind of plays that idea of world building, but that's not a thing I I would associate with Australian comedy. Yeah, no, I, well, I, I haven't seen it. I guess I, I've been inspired by uh, more international acts, I guess, like Mr. Bean and Alan Partridge, even though I sort of started realizing I was subconsciously inspired by them in the later years. Because when I first started doing Lewis, I refused to watch like Pee Wee and Pee Wee's Big Adventure and all that sort of stuff because people would say, it's like this. And I'm like, no, 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 don't show me what (laughs) it's like. I want to do my own thing. And I thought I was being quite creative and different, but maybe I wasn't. (laughs) And why did you come to comedy? Like why was comedy the thing that you were drawn to? I don't know. I think my granddad had a great sense of humour and I remember sitting at dinners and I really liked that he had a lot of the other family members' attention because of the jokes he was telling. So I guess humour was kind of a big part of uh, me growing up and and I liked it and then I guess I sort of... Yeah, I always had an interest in filmmaking and that sort of developed in my high school years and I had a great media teacher, but it, was, it wasn't until I made my first sort of comedy short that I really thought, ah, this is something I really like and I really feel like I'm good at yeah. or can be better at. <laughs> does that answer your question? I totally, 100%. And actually yeah. does offer a really nice segue into talking about being a kid. Do you remember what the first Disney animated feature was that you saw? Yes, I do. I think it was Cinderella and... Sleeping Beauty. Right. Yeah, it was those two films. I don't remember the films very well. I remember sequences like The Glass Slipper and The Dragon really scaring me. Yeah. Um, but I have a vivid recollection of my first Disney movie I saw at the cinema, which was also the first film I ever saw at the cinema, which was The Lion King. As a first film to see at the cinema, as much as I have misgivings about The Lion King, it's an like, like an a visual and oral assault, really. Like yeah. it's like particularly with the way that it begins, it just kind of hits you like a wall. What was that like as a little kid to see that, to have that experience? Uh, just overwhelmed. I think I was overwhelmed by the entire experience because it was my first film as well. Yeah. So I'd heard of going to the movies, but this was the first time I was going to the movies. And I remember looking to my left and right and just looking at everyone else sitting in a room. So like all these strangers that I didn't know were all sitting in a room watching the screen. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was really nice. And, and Scar's poor entering frame in the first just terrified me. So, yeah, I also remember the short that played before the film, which was this, this lamb, this lion lamb, wow. Lambert the sheepish lion, maybe that was it. I remember the song that would be that was in the film yeah oh, i had no idea there was a short before it because i think i think we saw it at least three times at the cinemas because my mum loved it and she just i think each progressive time i got progressively more frustrated with it i think part of my reason for being and this actually i was realizing this is going to become a narrative at some point in this podcast um my relationship with quite a few of the films was defined by the ways that my brother my younger brothers saw them and so there's a there was a kind of string of films that my the next brother underneath me, my brother Josh, um, loved, and so because he was my brother and we were antagonistic towards each other, I instinctively did not like them. The funny thing is that 
as growing up and rediscovering and reconnecting with all these films, I fell in love with all of the films that my brother also loved as a kid, except The Lion King, which I just, but I think it was also just like, it was a film that we just had on all the time. That's interesting because I have a similar, not relationship, but a similar attitude to anything uh, Hispanic in in my younger years. I was really, uh, maybe not resistant, but I did not engage in anything cultural because I, I, I mean, watching these films that we're going to talk about now, it sort of positioned me to think about my relationship with my culture and, and my interest in it. Yeah. Uh, and doing this has really positioned me to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, in the last four years, but yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So tell us a bit more about your cultural background because you have um family and cultural ties to latin america what is your um cultural background uh so i'm a chilean australian i was born here but my parents uh are from chile my mum migrated in 1977 and my dad in 1982 so they met here and uh got married and had me and my sister why did they immigrate to australia what was the reason they were escaping the pinochet regime so the government was overthrown agenda which was a socialist government have they been able to go back like has 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 your family been able to go back to chile have you been to chile i have my mum's been a few times gone with my grandmother but then in 2015 i went back with my family i went with my mum my dad and my brother-in-law and uh, we went to Chile, Peru, Bolivia, Colombia, and we just had a family trip, and it was uh, it was great. Yeah, what was it, the experience going back to a place that has defined, I imagine, defined so much of your life and your family and your understanding of self? What was it like to go back to that? Because of my uh, resistance to any cultural um, <laughs> influence, I guess, by my parents, uh, I didn't go in expecting anything. I, I didn't, I was obviously interested to learn more about it, but I didn't go with a sense of trying to learn more about who I was. Mm. Although when I got there, it really positioned me to think about that. And I'm quite grateful to have gone. Yeah. Um, not that I feel like I need to go again, because it's not like home is there or anything, yeah. but uh, it was really nice to, to accidentally come full circle with my cultural uh, experience, I guess. It was, it was nice to see people that looked like me. <laughs> I know that sounds really strange to say because everyone wants to be themselves, yeah. an individual, but I feel like maybe in, in, in primary school I had a hard time being that and accepting yeah. that because I was too busy trying to uh, assimilate. <laughs> Why do you think that you were trying to do that as a kid? To ask you a giant question. Yeah, this is another podcast altogether. Yeah. <laughs> I think I felt this pressure to do it. Uh, and also because of my interest in showbiz, yeah. I distinctly remember watching television and thinking, nobody really looks like me. Yeah. And it being so far out of my reach, which is, which is really quite sad to, to reflect on and look yeah. back on. Because I remember watching Neighbours and going, okay, Neighbours is, they produce that here, that's big. I want to be on Neighbours. Then I watched Neighbours and I, I just thought, nobody looks like me on Neighbours. How could I ever be on Neighbours? And that's when my, um, my interest sort of turned to more camera work and writing and I guess accidentally started learning more things that were of bigger use to me um, because of this uh, 
underrepresentation in yeah. Australian media. In the period, you talked about the period of kind of reconnecting with Chilean culture and actively kind of pursuing it. What defines the representation of Chilean or even Latin American culture in popular culture, in popular Western culture? What is like, how, how is it represented? I don't think it, it really is. I guess like in the films, there's a lot of gaucho representation and I guess Chileans have their own version of that. It's very similar to the Argentinians that are, I guess, represented in the films, but uh, it is quite different. There, there isn't anything really in mainstream media that is distinctly Chilean, except for one actor, the guy from Narcos, and that's about it. Well, is he from Narcos? I don't even know. I'm just thinking of Latin American dramas, and that's just one. That kind of becomes the most disturbing fact is that it just lumps, like from a Western perspective, we lump them all into this kind of one cult, like melting pot. I mean, one of the things that came up, that comes up with the prep for the good neighbor in the good neighbor policy and the prep for these films is the fact that when so many of these studios were approached to do it, they were like, add some atmosphere. And that's, and it was just a generic sense of atmosphere or um, like the stereotype of what Latin America is. Um, and even, yeah, it, like even with today, it's like, there's nothing that like there's nothing that clearly defines the countries as countries of their like with their own specific cultures, their own specific geography, um, their own specific climates. Yeah, it's it's slightly it's slightly uncomfortable now thinking about it and talking about it. How much we still just lump the whole continent into one thing. Yeah, I guess you know there's the South Americans, there's the and Mexico. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, but there are you know so many different cultures. I don't even know about you know, that are not being represented. In early 1941, the CIAA proposed a tour of South America for Walt Disney and some of his artists, both as a way of gathering material and establishing new relationships with Latin American artists. Planning began almost immediately, driven by the strong relationship between Disney distributor RKO Pictures and the Rockefeller family. RKO saw it as a perfect opportunity to promote their upcoming Disney films in Latin America, particularly Fantasia, which was due for release there later in the year. There were two problems though. The first was that the previous Goodwill tours had gone so badly that many of the Latin American countries had become resentful of them. In order to avoid any possible diplomatic mistakes, Disney was instructed to publicly avoid linking himself and the studio with the CIAA, instead framing the tour as what it partly was, a chance to research for upcoming projects. The other problem was the studio strike. The negotiations with the strikers were reaching boiling point, and the drop in staff was putting a strain on the projects coming into completion, including the Reluctant Dragon, Dumbo and Bambi. There were also concerns that due to the political climate in South America, Walt's refusal to negotiate with the strikers would create an image of him that Latin American countries would reject. As a result, even though the tour was confirmed in everything but a formal written agreement, there were delays right up until August. Finally, on the 5th of August 1941, a formal agreement was executed between the United States government and Walt Disney Productions for a field study of Latin America and 12 one-reel cartoons. Within a week, the 18-person tour, made up of Disney staff members and artists who had both excelled in their fields and were also not part of the strike, began their trips to South America, 
with the tour officially beginning with Walt's arrival in Rio de Janeiro on the 17th of August. The tour began with 10 days in Brazil, which was soon extended to three weeks. As soon as they arrived, Walt was greeted with adulation by the public and by important dignitaries, invited to a series of gala engagements that culminated in the grand Brazilian premiere of Fantasia. In between events, the team immersed themselves in Brazilian culture, particularly the music. One song they found themselves particularly drawn to was Ari Barriosa's Aquela do Brasil, which Walt first heard in a hotel in Belém. It was a wildly popular song in Brazil, but mostly unknown in North America. They were also charmed by the personality of the Brazilian parrot, the Papagaio, and thought it might make for a potential character in the shorts. Even before they left Brazil, the tour was proving to be the most successful of the CIAA's efforts, with Walt happily participating in public events and radio broadcasts, and the people of Brazil appreciating the respect imparted to them by the team. It was also here that the group christened themselves with an unofficial title, El Grupo. If the Brazilian leg of the tour had been a huge success, Argentina would prove to be even greater. The CIAA had asked El Grupo to give particular attention to Argentina, as the Nazis were establishing their strongest position there. Nazi press were already slandering the tour and Walt before they arrived, but the public embrace of Walt was even greater here than in Brazil. El Grupo arrived on the 8th of September and quickly established a temporary studio at the Alver Palace Hotel. They were particularly interested in exploring Argentina's gaucho culture. The gaucho are a national symbol of Argentina and Uruguay, skilled horsemen renowned in culture and legend for their bravery and honour. Before leaving Burbank, they had already entertained the idea of a short centred around the gaucho, particularly after looking at the work of beloved Argentine artist Florencio Molina Campos, whose paintings of gaucho culture were beloved across Latin America and who the team had met briefly in Brazil. El Grupo were given the opportunity to witness gaucho culture firsthand and were warmly embraced, with the locals even dressing Walt in traditional gaucho attire. Towards the end of September, it was decided that El Grupo should split up and head for different parts of the continent, in order to gather as much material as possible from Bolivia, Peru and the rest of Argentina before reconvening in Chile. By the end of October, the team had returned to the United States with a mountain of artwork and material, as well as a deeper appreciation for Latin American culture, and were ready to put it all to work. For the CIAA, the Goodwill Tour had also been an enormous success, strengthening relationships between the two continents more so than any other participants in the Good Neighbor program. So, had you seen either of the Good Neighbor films before? I thought I hadn't. It's, oh, right. Watching uh, the Three Amigos. Three Caballeros. Three Caballeros. Why Three do Amig I always get them confused? Because I'm thinking of Chevy Chase. Steve so, Martin, Chevy Chase, yeah, yeah. and Rick Moran. Martin Short, right. <laughs> <laughs> Rick Moranis. Common mistake. Common mistake. So I thought I hadn't seen them, but um, I was watching the Three Caballeros. Yeah. And one of the shorts in that is the. The donkey, the flying donkey? Yep, the flying gachito, yep. Ah, uh, that's the one. And watching it, I realized that I had seen it. My uncle showed it to me once. But I would have been at an age where it wouldn't have registered as a Disney film or anything like that. But I do remember watching it and thinking that it felt familiar. So obviously the animation style, I feel like um, I'd, I'd sort of seen elsewhere. Yeah. That felt like a Disney film because the little gaucho is 
looks a lot like Pinocchio. Well, it's animated by the same animator as Pinocchio. That I think, like, yeah, I think it's the same base, like the same animator was working on it. And yeah, because it has, because I mean, we'll talk about this when we get to Three Caballeros, but the amount of like, the beautiful thing about Disney animation at that period is the amount of empathy that those, that the animation can instill in you. And like the minute he appears on screen, you're just like, oh, I like this kid. Do you know whether or not anyone else in your family had ever seen them? No. No, I don't think. I mean, aside from my uncle knowing about that short, I don't think we've, we'd ever, we had ever seen them together. And when I asked you to be the guest on this episode, because you hadn't, you hadn't watched the films before I'd asked you, and you were very enthusiastic about talking about these films. Why were you enthusiastic to talk about them and what were you expecting before you watched them? I think I was just excited to learn more about something that possibly represented me. So I didn't really go in with any expectation aside from knowing that there'll be references to it. Watching them, though, I got quite emotional to see uh, references to things that I I sort of see, I used to see in my family life, like... Yeah the gauchos dancing the cueca or the Chilean version, which is a cueca, which is this dance with a handkerchief. Um, so my granddad would do that a lot. And it was just bizarre watching an animated version of it. And I felt just deeply moved by seeing it. And it just made me think about how important representation is and how these Disney films would have meant the world to, you know, those cultures that were represented in a way that they they liked and, and that, that worked. Because it's easy for us. I mean, we're so used to now the idea that the that Disney the Disney animation representation of any culture is going to be problematic. Like whether it be films in the 30s and 40s down to films in the in the 90s, which are probably some of the most um, contentious. And so, like even I had because I had seen I definitely seen the Three Caballeros as a kid quite a lot because I remembered the song. But I and I remember it was a, it was a film that we borrowed on VHS a lot. That's interesting. What what attracted you to keep watching it? I suspect it was the fact that it was colourful and funny. I think because the funny thing was when I came back and rewatched it as an adult, I didn't remember a lot of it. I rem- remembered the characters. I remembered um, Donald and I remembered Joe and I remembered um, Panchito, but I didn't remember much else apart from maybe the song. Saludos Amigos, I had never seen up until I bought the Blu-ray set from the States. But like the assumption was before I started, this was like, oh, we're going into this and they're going to be culturally insensitive and problematic and we're going to have sit here and discuss all the ways that Disney screwed this up. And instead you watch them and you're like, oh my God, they didn't. From the research point of view, like the fact that they spent so long being as respectful as possible, even down to like, we'll talk about this with Saludos Amigos, but how the characters are positioned within the narratives of each of the shorts is really um, careful in a way that is both really impressive, uh, particularly considering it's the early 40s and, you know, racism is not necessarily a subject that people are actively discussing, but even more so with the fact that it is a problem with so many of the films around this film that, you know, representation of African-Americans and with, you know, representation of Native Americans coming up with Peter Pan. Um, in some of the package films coming up, there's some stuff in there that's like, oh, that's not, that's not comfortable. But that these two films don't suffer from that. And so they're kind of gems in a way that you can, you know, embrace them now and not feel not feel like shit watching them, I guess. Which, I mean, this is coming from someone who's a, you know, a white person of like British and Maltese background. And, you know, it's, that's quite amazing to hear about you, ha- you having an emotional response to them. Yeah. 
Well, I feel like you, you were just saying about how they didn't manage to offend. I think that the making in, during the making of this, there was huge pressure for them not to offend or for them not to have any political imprint. Which is amazing considering how politically motivated the films actually were yeah. in fighting Nazism. I think maybe that gives reason to why it actually worked. There was huge pressure for it to not be offensive. Yes. They, they couldn't afford to be lazy with their representation. Let's go see the town. Okay, so where do we go? Don't know. I will show you the land of the samba. Mixing four animated shorts with documentary footage shot by El Grupo during the tour, Saludos Amigos acts as an imaginative travelogue around four of the Latin American countries, each short representing each country. In Lake Titicaca, Donald Duck acts as a tourist around the iconic lake on the border between Bolivia and Peru. In Pedro, an intrepid little plane named Pedro flies mail across the Andes to Chile. In El Gacho Goofy, Goofy is introduced to the culture of the Argentine Gacho. And in Aquela do Brasil, Donald is given a tour of Brazil by the Brazilian parrot Joe Carioca. The original plan for the Good Neighbor shorts was for 12 films to be developed in groups of four, with four shorts being produced simultaneously. Even though the bulk of the research had focused on Brazil and Argentina, the CIAA needed the shorts to cover all of the Latin American countries to avoid favoritism. This became especially important when it was decided to not only release the shorts in the US as originally intended, but also in Latin America, bolstered by the success of the tour. Lake Titicaca was inspired by the watercolours artist Mary Blair had painted while visiting the region. In early development, Donald was visiting Titicaca as an archaeologist, but it was quickly changed to a tourist. This turned out to be an unexpected blessing. By presenting Donald as an ignorant North American tourist, they could construct gags at his expense rather than ones reflecting badly on Peruvian or Bolivian culture. This useful storytelling trick would be used throughout the shorts. While Lake Titicaca had been a direct response to experiences from the tour, the story for Pedro was one that the team had already started working on beforehand. It was intended as a good-natured nod to Pan Am, who was sponsoring the tour, not as one of the South American shorts, but El Grupo had returned with very little material from Chile. It was decided to adapt the story to a Chilean setting, with the little plane, now named Pedro, carrying mail across the dangerous Andes Mountains. Though many found it charming, Chilean audiences criticised the sequence for not incorporating any elements of Chilean culture. One of the focuses of the early research had been on gaucho culture, and the story team were keen to find a way to incorporate it into some of the short subjects. El Gaucho Goofy turned out to be an ingenious marriage of extensive research, first-hand experience, and the Disney style. The short carried over the format of the popular how-to series starring Goofy, adapting an idea already in the works called How to Be a Cowboy. Again, as with Donald Duck, Goofy is a North American visiting Argentina, a cowboy learning the ways of the gaucho. This meant that they could throw ridiculous gags into the shorts without offending or misrepresenting gaucho culture. As with the series, instruction was given through narration, with Goofy responding by demonstrating what not to do. The short was heavily influenced by the art of Lorenzo Molina Campos, who was the only artist with whom Disney made a formal agreement, despite the many connections they had made in Latin America. Both Molina Campos and the audiences in Argentina praised the film for its respect to gaucho culture. The most innovative of the four shorts was named after the song by Ari Barriosa, the title of which translated to Watercolours of Brazil. 
The sequence would also incorporate another popular song, Tico Tico, another song that El Grupo had heard while in Brazil. Rather than driven by narrative, the short would be an impressionistic portrait of Brazil using a watercolour motif. Donald Duck makes another appearance in Aquela do Brasil, once again as a tourist, and we are also introduced to a new character, the Portuguese-speaking parrot Joe Carioca, inspired by the papagaio the team had been so charmed by in Brazil. Driven by a recording of the song by Aliosa Oliveira, the short was a natural progression of the Fantasia style, marrying experimental animation with highly evocative music. The idea of combining the first four Good Neighbor shorts into a feature film seems to have originated from RKO producer David O. Selznick, who had been trying to convince Disney to release a film review featuring their popular characters. The shorts weren't connected in any narrative sense, so it was decided to use the 16mm footage shot on the tour to construct the film, originally titled Saludos, as a kind of travelogue. The footage was originally intended to be used internally within the CIAA, eventually becoming the documentary short South of the Border with Disney in 1942. While most of the footage was from the trip, it was necessary to shoot some pickups of the team boarding, flying and disembarking from the planes, and insert shots of the artists at work. All of those were completed at Burbank. What did you make of Saludos Amigos? That was the one that you had not had any interaction with before. But what did you make of it? I watched this one second. <laughs> so it was, I really should have watched it first. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed it. I just found the, the, the segues between the short films quite tedious. Like I, I think you can tell a story with, in just animation and to, to watch the animators get on a plane and do all that thing didn't really interest me. And it felt like quite a, a lazy framing device yeah. because they probably just didn't know how to stitch the films together. No, and like, that's the thing that's um, so fascinating about Saludos Amigos is that it is a film that is never was never intended to be a film, yeah. that the decision to put them together as four shorts was a late decision and a, a highly profitable one. But there, like that, that ends up becoming one of the most intriguing, as a kind, I guess, aspects of the film of how do you construct a film out of bits and pieces that don't have any connection? I mean, I quite like the device of how they've stitched it together, not necessarily what it is they've stitched together with, because I mean, you know, not only do they have, they've got the 60 millimeter films that they never intended to use for any other purpose other than. Yeah. And you can tell as well, some of the camera work is terrible. Yeah. And, and Walt Disney was one of yeah, the camera operators. Yeah. Well. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, just some tilts. I, I was just watching it, just looking at it technically and going, what, what is that tilt? And then also the fact that like 16 millimeter film just does not have the same quality that a 35 millimeter, like this, particularly when you look at the three Caballeros where it has 35 millimeter footage or at least much 16 millimeter footage that's much better taken care of. But also the fact that in Saludos Amigos, they've had to go back and reshoot bits because they didn't know they were making this into a film. So all the shots of them getting onto the planes or all the shots of them animating. Yeah, I remember thinking that plane shot is fantastic and yeah. the, the rest is just sort of... They shot that at Burbank at the studio because they just needed to fill it in. So apart from the the framing devices, what did you think? So in in this one, they sort of explored Chile a little bit more. Yeah. And by a little bit, a little bit, I mean really little. As the bare minimum. So they're basically in the plane. So Pedro's little film, I I was just left quite, quite empty, really. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I knew this was going to be the Chilean sequence, but it was essentially just a 
a, a, a little plane that was name, given a Hispanic name and then just a few mountains that the geography was accurate, I guess. Yeah. And, and that was it and sort of closed with close-up of a postcard that was almost like a slap in the face. It was like, oh, it didn't really matter what we did. This happens again in Three Caballeros by that thing of, look, so they had a series of stories that they'd planned and Pedro is definitely the one that suffers the most from the fact that it's just so still stuck in the idea of, oh, we thought of this beforehand and we're just kind of shoehorning that in. And I know that historically um, audiences in Chile were pretty pissed. Yeah, and considering all the other films that feature in these movies, yeah. <laughs> these films within films, um, this felt quite basic. It almost felt, it just felt very lazy and, and, and rushed. I mean, I'm sure they weren't being lazy or, you know, rushing into it considering their technology, but it just didn't feel like there was any real consideration aside from just references to places and names. Do you think that one of the reasons why the Pedro short feels so, the Pedro sequence feels so inadequate in terms of cultural representation is because the other three are so impressive in terms of cultural representation? Yeah, they're they're really vibrant and colourful and this is set in the sky. There's... There's no, there's no color or music. Yeah, there's. It's one of the few sequences that doesn't benefit from sourced music. Everything else in the film is sourced music. Yeah, it really misses it. It really sticks out compared to the other, the the B, the A and B countries. Argentina, Brazil. Yes, yeah. don't know. But man, did they love Brazil? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, you know, the the you know, not only do they spend a significant, the kind of arguably the best sequence in the film is set in Brazil. They then return to Brazil with the second film. One thing I'll add is, uh, it's in, it was interesting to watch the documentary that you also uh, suggested I watch. Yep, Walton El Grupo. In response to the, I guess, Chilean community being upset with this this short film that Walt created, that El Condorito sort of came up, and that cartoon uh was in my sphere when i was growing up that and it was interesting to learn that that cartoon was born out of frustration and and spite and became quite a big thing in the chilean community because disney let them down (laughs) (laughs) they responded by coming up with their own culture like their own cultural their own cartoon yeah Um, tell us more about that cartoon for listeners my uncle uh introduced me to it el condorito which is based on the condor which is the i guess the national um, animal emblem in the emblem animal. How do you talk about <laughs> mascot? I yes, know. and I guess like a Disney character, he's a little bit like Mickey Mouse, but <laughs> a little more mischievous and and dirty. And I I remember being exposed to that as a as a kid. My my uncle really really wanting me to get into El Condorito and the other shorts in the film, the other sequences in the film. What did you make of those? So there's the late Titicaca one where you have Donald turning up as an Amer- as a dumb American tourist and causing a lot of destruction. I really enjoyed that one. Most I, I enjoyed it in that uh, Donald was the joke, and then it made me think about what you can get away with when your um, protagonist is an idiot, and it made me think about how I do that a lot, and I use that to my advantage because as a character performer. I know I can get away with more testing stuff, especially with the audience, if I am being someone else. It it gives me license to be potentially more offensive. And I think that was very clever, a very clever way of Disney being able to learn more about this culture, but positioning Donald as an idiot um, and also creating comedy out of that because you never want the joke 
to miss and you never want the joke to be about the people you're trying to impress. <laughs> yeah, so do you think it's, it's successful in that respect of yes. not offending? Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah, because Donald is the tourist and the alien and is just making a fool of himself, not a fool of the people around him. Um, because I think that would have been a huge mistake. Yes. And it's like such a, it's such a wonderful demonstration, which is weird to kind of talk specifically about Donald when we're talking about like a, a cultural representation um, of Bolivia and Peru. But it kind of sh- is a beautiful showcase that short about what how diverse and exciting a character Donald is, certainly by comparison to Mickey, in the fact that Donald can be, can chuck a tantrum. Donald can make a mistake. Donald can have... Like, his, he can have emotions and go through moods. Donald can lust for women. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We are, yeah, we're going to get to that. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about Donald's lust for women. But it, it did really uh, allow me to kind of like Donald a little more because he was a character that I never really gave much time for. It was always yeah. just Mickey. But Donald really is quite interesting. It, re- it really made me kind of fall in love with Donald a little bit. He's easier to relate to. And, in fact, watching him be a tourist... That wonderful moment of him swapping the clothes. They don't specify which particular culture it is that he's visiting, but because they tr- they were trying not to upset either Bolivia or Peru. But you know, swapping like for the traditional clothes and playing the flute badly and all that. Like it's he's such it's ca- it, he's su- he's such a relatable concept of a tourist yeah. in the thing of like, oh, we want to interact. But just in the kind of like the way that he, you know, he poses for the photo with the flute as a walking stick. And it's like, mate, that's not that's that that's not what you do with that. Yeah. But like the mistakes that Donald's make it, Donald makes are easily relatable and um easy to connect with. Yeah. It's easy to see yourself in Donald in a way that you can't see yourself in Mickey. And what makes it endearing is that he's trying. Yeah. As well. One of the things I always get struck by when I watch the Pedro sequence, as much as it has no discernible cultural characteristics whatsoever, apart from the use of the names. Um, from a technical perspective, it's the like the animation of him flying is stunning. Like that first shot where you see him going up towards the Andes, and you can see in the in the background, um, you can see the landscape in the background. There's such a sense of like there's so, he has so little gravity to him. Like you can it's it's like watching um, like Kiki's Delivery Service, the Miyazaki film, where you get the sense of like of like he's a character in a great sense of in a state of flight. Which is quite beautiful and unexpectedly beautiful, particularly when everything else is just so, like, flat in this short. Yeah, I did enjoy with Pedro when he he would uh, walk backwards to get scared. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's air there. He doesn't need to step. When he's hiding in the cloud to hide from the mountain. Yeah, and there's there's a moment where he's confronted by the mountain or, or some lightning or something. He's afraid and so he wants to sort of slowly retreat. Yeah. But... His his wheels step back like as if he has legs, but on on nothing. There's no ground there, but it was it was a nice detail. Which is also something that up to this point in the Disney films, you don't see that. Like that's breaking the rules of nature. And as much as that's something that they they were probably they were doing in the short films, that's not. Some, this is like a prestige feature. I mean, it doesn't know it's going to be a prestige feature, I guess. But it is interesting, certainly if you're watching just these films. To, as this a point of like the last film we've watched is Bambi and then to go to this where it looks like a storybook and the where Bambi where the rules of nature are so pedantically adhered to the same thing happens in the next um, sequence El Gaucho Goofy of like the horse plays the piano. The horse doesn't have any fingers, so how on earth is it actually hitting the notes? Yeah, the horse also wears a dress at one point. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, that too. Um, <laughs> and horses can't wear dresses. I mean, you know. <laughs> They can if they want. We can't make that decision for them. But I know that, like, 
Melina Campos, that was one of his problems when they were, when he looked at um, El Gaucho Goofy. He was like, but Mr. Disney, the horse can't play the piano. Mm. And Disney was like, I know, like, <laughs> but that doesn't make any sense. Like, I know, it's comedy. With all of these films, there was a, a real heightened, surreal uh, nature to each one. Yeah. And it felt very Looney Tunes, like very physical. And I can't help but think that maybe who they were making it, f- that was more a deal of who they were making it for. I could see my family members, for instance, really getting into the, the physical nature of the jokes that yeah. were happening, all the slapstick. It's, um, yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying every Hispanic loves slapstick, <laughs> but it's, it's definitely easier to, to understand, especially when, you know, characters are, are speaking or the, the narrator is speaking in English, but you could easily watch these films without a narrator. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's really very much in, in El Gaucho Goofy because the physical comedy in that is so clear. Um, it's kind of a, like, in a way, it's kind of like a, a minor triumph, that sequence, both in that you feel like you're learning for me, a non-Hispanic person learning a tremendous amount about gaucho culture and Argentinian culture, but in a way that is incredibly digestible, very succinct, and tremendously entertaining. So you were talking about having a strong emotional response to seeing gaucho culture represented. Talk to me more about this particular short thing, because this is the one where they really, really focus on that. Like the flying gauchito does it to a certain extent, but this is where they really focus in on it. Yeah, it's funny though. I felt like I I enjoyed the flying gauchito more um, because the narrator wasn't American. So in the flying gauchito, it was the from told from the point of view of the gaucho as a grown man. Yeah. So he was reflecting on his experience, and it was also told it, poetically. It was a poem. Yeah. Things rhymed. Well, this is more of an instructional video. Yeah, yeah. I felt quite disconnected from it. But the, I, I definitely responded more to the flying gauchito because of that, um, just the way the, the narration played out. I, I, poetry is a big part of that culture too. Um, so I, I felt like that they really nailed that in fusing those elements together. But yeah. the, the goofy one I found, you know, was admirable. But, but yeah, n- not in terms of seeing it with my lens anyway. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I agree it was very uh, easy to to learn more about the culture, essentially. And there's, you know, the, those amazing sequences like the slow motion sequence. That, that I did enjoy. Which is yeah. just, and again, it was one of those moments, again, where you remind, remind yourself that that's a pencil on paper yeah. and the fluidity of, like, the, flu, like the, the fluidity of the way that, like, you know, Goofy is leaping up and down in the horse's saddle when, you know, the spurs, you know, poke him in the butt and then he leaps into the, like, it's, it's cut, like, it's, it's thri- it's a it's a thrilling um piece of technical work to watch that bit. Yeah, I re- I really enjoyed that slow motion bit. Every time there were a lot of like let's see that again in reverse or they would reverse the animation a lot. Every time that happens I go that's the animators being lazy they're just playing that bit backwards. <laughs> but I'm glad I'm glad they played it again in in slow motion and it affected the soundtrack. It was all very carefully calculated. I, I think the only issue was that you can tell the animators and Walt Disney had a much better time in Brazil because it definitely reflects on the films that they produced. Yes. Um, so I only wish they had a better time in Chile or, or they bothered to go there. I'd- well, yeah, because they did. I think, I think, well, I remember reading when they came to doing 
when they came to putting together these first four shorts in the first package, the reason they ended up going with, like they chose Pedro was they realized they didn't have enough material about Chile. And so they were like, well, we've got to do something because we visited there. Like it was a country that we visited. And so much about the tricky political situation with these films was making sure that everyone was represented. And so like with the three caballeros, a lot of the decisions about what like the decisions with those films was based on which countries were pissed they didn't get featured in the first one. And so with Pedro it was just, well, we need to do something about Chile. Oh, we'll just take this idea we had about this flying, this mail plane and just stick it in Chile. And I mean, by comparison to the other two shorts, it it seems um in, like it doesn't seem sufficient, but certainly by comparison to Aquelo de Brazil, it's like because that's kind of in a way the film builds itself is entirely built, even though it's not constructed as a feature, it's building itself to how extraordinary that last sequence is. Yeah, yeah. And there's a nice lead up to it too. I imagine if you're watching it and expecting your country, you're just hoping that it's last and not first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to be the warm-up act. And the fact that it starts in the most unexpected, it doesn't start like any of the other sequences in the film by starting with the song, which is such an amazing song. Like you know, anyone who has any kind of film background, the minute the song starts, you're like, oh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Like it's, you know, it, we, you know, it, you know, that's kind of like a cultural marker for it. But the visual language that that sequence establishes, which it becomes very important for Disney animation for at least the next 10 years, the idea of the paintbrush constructing the world in front of you and the animation this, like, if anything, Aquarela do Brazil is where you can see the influences of, like, Fantasia, the, the work they've done on Fantasia kind of coming back, where the music in the other sequences, which is very present, is always there in the background or is used as an example. Here, it's the animation and the music in sync with one another, driven by the the sense of what it feels like to be in, what it felt like for those artists to be in Brazil. Yeah. There's such a sense of... For me, who's never been there, it's the one that I get the strongest sense of place. And in turn, a great sense of affection for where they were. And also, now that I think about it, a little bit Looney Tunes-esque with the paintbrush, just illustrating everything and allowing characters to break the fourth wall and change the animation as it happens. Which all comes from the the fact the song translated is Watercolours of Brazil. And so it literally was just the the thing of going, well, that's what the song's about, so what if we just did that? And the fact that... um, the Blairs, in particular Mary Blair, was doing a lot of her a lot of her concept artwork and a lot of the artwork she was creating while in, while on the tour was in watercolor and how she was having such a profound effect on all of the team on the, on it, particularly Disney. That that then becomes where like the, the visual language that leads into it, um, and then leads us to having Donald return and meeting a brand new character in um, Jose Carioca. Like it does feel like it's as much as it's not intended to be the climax. It has such a like, it's such an artistic, rhythmic, it's even narrative kind of um, climax to yeah. the film. It like you could not put this anywhere else in the film because the rest of the film would feel inadequate by comparison. Yeah, imagine that followed by the biplane that would be your ending. <laughs> Chile would talk be furious. About it, talk about a downer. <laughs> um, and yeah, like all of a sudden you start to see. Disney animation playing with visual storytelling in a way, like it's it in a way it's referencing Fantasia, but pushing the con like the abstracts of Fantasia um, into new and in, in interesting perspectives.
It was during the tour that one of the most important artists in the story of Disney animation stepped forward, visual artist and watercolour painter Mary Blair. She had originally joined the tour to accompany her husband Lee, but while creating watercolour responses of her own, Blair's own distinct and striking visual style began to emerge, a style that would have a profound effect on Disney animation for the next decade. Blair was born Mary Brown Robinson in Oklahoma in 1911, and after graduating from college in 1931, received a scholarship from the Chouinard Art Institute in Los Angeles. Not long after graduating from Chouinard, she married Lee Blair, who shared with her a passion and skill with watercolour art. After early experiences in animation at MGM and Ub Iwerks Studio, Blair joined Disney in 1940, contributing concept art to Dumbo and an early version of Lady and the Tramp. She had joined reluctantly, and by the time of the South American tour, Mary had initially left the studio. Her work on the tour, though, had a profound impact on Walt and the other artists, who saw her work as the strongest response to the Latin American culture they were immersing themselves in. Upon returning to Burbank, Walt made her one of the primary art directors on the Good Neighbor Shorts, her work at Lake Titicaca in particular informing the visual language the films would use. Over the next decade, Blair would have an enormous impact on the style, look and use of colour in Disney animation, providing stunning concept art for Alice in Wonderland, Cinderella, Peter Pan, many of the sequences in Make My Music, and the animated sequences in Song of the South and So Dear to My Heart. Her hand is particularly felt in the films of the 1950s, and Walt ordered the animation staff to adhere as close as possible to Mary's colour stylings and art direction a task the animators found almost impossible. Blair left the studio in 1943, but her influence persisted, with Walt's frustration at her specific flair not translating effectively to final animation, prompting his extreme pursuit of visual consistency on Sleeping Beauty. Blair had a very successful career as a graphic artist and illustrator, including illustrating several Golden Books, but during planning for the World's Fair, Walt approached her to provide concept art for the It's a Small World ride. She would continue her relationship with Disney, providing murals for both Disneyland and Disney World. Mary Blair died in California in 1978, and continues to be recognised as an extraordinary artist to this day. If the Silver Age films of the 50s have now become our classical definition of the Disney style, it isn't a stretch to credit Mary Blair as its chief influence. Her work is dynamic, charming, arresting and inspired and perfectly captures the romanticism of the stories she influenced. Her influence on Disney animation, and on animation itself, is amongst the most significant of any individual artist. Of the two films, I actually still think that maybe Saludos Amigos is my favourite out really? of the two. Yeah, it's one of the things that I, like, I think it's because as much as the framing device isn't very rigorous, at least it isn't contrived. And like the one of the nice things about the film is that Lake Titicaca is um, parodying the travelogue, which is obviously a, a type of film that was more prevalent in that period of time than it is now. But the whole film kind of functions as a travelogue. Its only job is to go here is here is a series of countries. Let's visit them, and it doesn't have any kind of pretense other than that. It's something that also happens with the package films. I guess going into these, I was expecting the usual Disney tropes, which is you know. A, a, a story being told with with a bit of a an emotional punch, and neither of those two <laughs> things really happened. No, so maybe that's why you know audiences felt a little bit let down by their 
by their representation because they were yeah. expecting that that punch that Disney gives you, which which I felt like you know these these films were missing, but it didn't really the nature of the films didn't allow that to yeah. really happen. And it's very clear that they're more so than what's what is to come with Three Caballeros. It's really clear watching Saludos Amigos that these four shorts are intended as four shorts. And one of the other strange things about this film is it's barely like it's like forty seven minutes long. Like it's tiny. It's not. It's barely. It's it's funny to think of it as one of the Disney animated features because it barely qualifies as a feature. It's the shortest out of any of them. And so as much as it like in one respect it feels it's it's great because it's really swift. It gets its job done. Um, it doesn't take up too much of your time. None of it feels like it's spinning its wheels. But at the same time, it also risks of feeling inadequate. Certainly by comparison to something as grand and um, operatic as Bambi, which has just come before it. Um, And in a way kind of means that The Three Caballeros feels like an even stranger film because of how slight, wonderful, but slight Saludos Amigos is. Saludos Amigos had its world premiere on the 24th of August, 1942, in Rio de Janeiro, under its Portuguese title, Alô Amigos, and was an instant smash hit. Over the following months, the film was released throughout Latin America, always to great acclaim and packed houses. Audiences were thrilled to see their culture so respectfully combined with the popular Disney style, and the predominant complaints were from countries upset at not being represented. The original plan had been for the feature version to be shown in Latin America and the four shorts released separately in the US, but the success in South America convinced RKO to release it in feature form instead. The contract with the CIAA was also rewritten as a result, now for three feature films instead of 12 shorts. Renamed Saludos Amigos, the first of the Good Neighbor films premiered in the US on February 1943 and just as in Latin America, was a commercial success and warmly received. After the high art of Fantasia and Bambi, many saw it as a return to the grounded charm of the early Disney films, and were intrigued by its portrait of Latin America. As a result of the film's success, both Aquela do Brasil and Tico Tico were big commercial hits, the former translated into English as Brazil and becoming a popular jazz standard. In 1985, director Terry Gilliam would use the song for the opening of, and the inspiration for the title of, his film Brazil. The film also received three Oscar nominations, the most of any Disney feature up until that point, including Best Musical Score, Best Sound Recording, and Best Song for Saludos Amigos, the title track and only original song in the film. Saludos Amigos was unusual among the early Disney features for another reason. It actually made a profit on its initial release. Not a major one, but enough to label the project a success. By the time the film was in release though, Walt Disney and the Good Neighbor team were hard at work on the second film, another package film of four short subjects. The second Good Neighbor film, The Three Caballeros, had one major advantage over Saludos Amigos. It knew it was going to be a feature from the very beginning. While the inherent form of the film would be similar, the knowledge that the sequences weren't being developed as standalone shorts gave the Disney staff permission to push the boundaries, not just of the short subject, but of what animation was actually capable of. 
the film would be built around the next four Good Neighbor shorts. But while the first two would carry over from early planning on the series, the last two would be new ideas influenced by the reception of Saludos Amigos and an opportunity to push the technology of animation into unexpected directions. The Cold-Blooded Penguin, the story of an Antarctic penguin who dreams of living in the tropics, was, like Pedro, one of the early story ideas developed before the Goodwill Tour in 1941. It was inspired by the colonies of penguins who live in warmer climates on the coast of South America, and one advantage of the story was that it could be easily adapted to any location. Rather than choosing one location though, the journey of Pablo the Cold-Blooded Penguin mirrored that of El Grupo on their return journey to the US travelling up the west coast of the continent before settling in the Galapagos Islands. In that sense, The Cold-Blooded Penguin is only tangentially a good neighbour film, and has almost no discernible relationship with South America other than the places Pablo spies through his telescope. The story that would become The Flying Gachito was also an early idea, developed for a series of shorts that would focus entirely on gaucho culture. But in the end, it was the only short in the series produced. It was inspired by the popularity of horse racing in Latin America, and possibly as a response to the popularity of the pastoral symphony sequence in Fantasia with Latin American audiences. Once again, there was careful thought put into not offending gaucho culture, but this story didn't have a North American character to act as a foil. Instead, the plans for the series as a whole were that they would be narrated by an adult reminiscing about his childhood, which was depicted in the animation. This allowed for harmless slapstick humour as we watched this little boy make mistakes in the process of learning. So what did you make of the three caballeros? It was the, it being the first one of the two that you watched. Where what was your what what did you make of it watching it? Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was it was just harmless fun essentially. Um, it looked great, but like the other film, <laughs> you could tell uh, that they really pushed themselves with um, the opportunities they had with color in um, the sequences where it was set in Brazil. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, I I enjoyed the uh, little. Uh, Gaucho with his flying donkey, yeah. um, and the it was it was a nice um, it had a nice pace. So it yeah. started with the animation for for children essentially yes. the ping the penguins, and then it moved on to the Gaucho, which I guess the the it was a little more slapstick comedy, yeah. and then the ending, which is what we end up with a rooster shooting <laughs> uh, revolvers and smoking birds <laughs> and Donald lusting for women. You can almost kind of see like when they get to three caballeros, they know they're going to turn it. They're going, it's going to be a feature. So they have a bit more of an idea about what that they can kind of loosen the parameters a bit, but it does. You're completely right. It kind of feels like it's stepping towards. It's kind of like you can see the transition from the old concept of what the good neighbor films are going to be into what it is. They eventually become with the, th with this particular film. It definitely feels like they the animators or maybe even Walt Disney got bored with the premise. So they just really wanted to push themselves in that last sequence that, that, that where the, tr the transitions didn't really work, I don't think. Um, but it, it definitely was pretty, uh, pretty adventurous and it felt like they were, they were really pushing themselves to create something new with, with new technology as well. In a way, it's, a, it's good that the cold-blooded penguin happens at the beginning of the film because of all of the eight sequences in the two Good Neighbor films, it is by far the most inconsequential. Like at least Ped Pedro isn't connecting itself 
to cult to any kind of culture with any with any specificity. But it's a good little story, and it's it's beautifully animated, and it's really interesting. The Cold Blooded Penguin is just you. I remember it start. I started watching the film, and I thought my first thought was, "What is this doing here? This doesn't feel like it belongs in this." project really slow gags as well really slow setups and then sort of half payoffs and then you know but i really i really enjoyed uh his friends that he had supporting (laughs) because they were all so sad and tired looking and they just got on with life like oh well this is this is how we this is what happens here they all look so depressed. Yeah, the way they like the the tall ones just kind of giving the vaguest wave, <laughs> or like the way that he like breaks the champagne on the boat before it leaves, and then just like I, just throws the broken champagne <laughs> bottle into the water and walks <laughs> yeah, off. Yeah, it's just so sad. You definitely get the feeling that Pablo's friends are really over Pablo's shit by this point. Like, yeah, mate, we get it. You're 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 cold. And then to then, as much as Pedro, they just kind of layer on, you know. Chilean names and Chilean geography, at least it doesn't stick out as being, at least it doesn't feel like it's just being shoehorned in. The problem is that it's inadequate. With um, the cold-blooded penguin, it's so clear it's being shoehorned in. And then the film kind of saves itself by how wonderful the flying gachito is, how magical and thrilling it is. And it's such a, it's in a way it's, Again, it has that risk when you see that the you see the donkey fly out of the nest, and you're like, "Oh, really? Like this? This? This is this is a sweaty concept." But it's <laughs> but the, but the fact I thought that was quite cute. With but them. it's it's cute. But you kind of sit there going, "What has this got to do with like in like what has this got to do with Argentinian or in this particular case, you know, again shoehorning in the idea that this is um, Uruguay? Like, what does this have to do with Uruguay, Uruguay at all?" But then it just works so beautifully because it's just such a gorgeous piece of storytelling. Yeah, it it could have been set anywhere else. I think that's the issue with 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 it that we're trying to to work out is that what is distinct to each sequence that makes it solely theirs, and because the ones that don't work feel like they're easily could be slotted into any culture, that's where uh, Disney has fallen short. Does this one fall short? The Flying Gachito. I, I mean, I feel like there are enough references, um, cultural references, like the the gauchos dancing and eating and doing all those activities. But the story isn't really culturally significant or, no. or, or, or based around them. Yeah, it's definitely one of the stronger ones, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't say it, it, it's a huge success. Why do you think, though, that it was the one that you had the stronger emotional response to? Because I think it was the one, it was the one that I recognised as having seen before and that I saw them doing things that my granddad used to do. So dancing with the similar dances that were featured in it, I think. Because also the gaucho characters in this sequence are not represented by a man dog. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's, like, and, like, like and that's a huge difference <laughs> of like, as much as um, El Gaucho Goofy is trying to like give a nice, good little few minute um, primer on gaucho culture, you're still seeing it represented by someone who is not a human being and is not from Uruguay, not from Argentina. This is the first time we actually get to see that culture represented by people who look like the people who actually belong to that culture. Yeah, maybe that's why I responded emotionally, quite emotionally to it as well, because they were people, now that that you've said it. It all makes sense now. (laughs) Yeah, definitely, especially having that that cute little boy as the protagonist. Although it did end quite ominously, like... Oh, no one ever saw, heard from us or saw us again. Does that mean they were killed? 
Because that's what I thought because they were the, because they run away, they fly away with the no, actually they don't fly away with the winnings. They just fly no, they away. Just fly away. Yep. And the the people that were about to give them the winnings were furious. They were angry. And just the way that ended made it suggest Maybe I just went too dark. They it made it suggest like that they'd been killed, and maybe this voice was was actually dead. Well, it's very abrupt, and also like it like those first two sequences are the the clearest holdovers from the original concept for what the Good Neighbor project was going to be was going to be. Like it's clear they are intended to be self contained shorts. They've been developed as such. They are being shoehorned into like of all of the framing devices in the film, the framing device of Donald watching the short like the home. Films, they opens the package and it's yeah. own films. That is the weakest. Really? I quite enjoyed that. It had hints of Aladdin. Do you remember Friend Like Me, that sequence? Oh, yeah. Where the projector, the projector screen rolls down and yeah. and Donald gets caught up in it. It it felt like this was the first draft of the Friend Like Me sequence in Aladdin. Yeah. Because he's in Donald's in this sort of like pink void almost. This this endless space yeah, until like, he plugs in the projector which is so weird like when the um when the powerpoint turns up you have this moment of like the space is defined particularly because the first image you see in in the framing sequences is the shadow of the present which looks like such a um an abstract object and then you're put into this abstract space um the idea of like the space being defined in any, in any sense doesn't seem to make any like make sense with the rules um the one thing that i do give credit for with the framing device of him watching the home movies is it introduces my favorite character in any of the Good Neighbor films, which is the Araquan. That's the one that sings. That's the, the one that, that, that screams and sings. Yeah, I love that character too. It's just insane. Oh, forgive the interruption, Donald. This crazy bird is the Araquan. During the transition between the cold-blooded penguin and the flying cachito, we are introduced to perhaps the strangest character in any Disney animated feature, the Araquan, inspired by the Araqua the Brazilian name for the speckled chachalaca, known for its bizarre bird call and their tendency to congregate in small groups. According to popular folklore, it is an agent of mischief and mayhem, and this is certainly the role of the Araquan in The Three Caballeros. He appears in Donald's film on exotic birds, breaking both the fourth wall and the logic of the film itself, letting out a scream and dashing about the screen to a frantic and insane song. This would not be the only moment of disruption in the film from this strange, infectious figure. You know, really, it's kind of one of the benefits of watching these films in chronological order. When the Araquan turns up, your brain kind of just goes, what the fuck is that? Like, yeah. There's nothing else like it, remotely like it. There's a real sense of danger with that character. You don't know what it's going to do. Yeah. There's no motivation. It's just doing it. And it also is the first time you've seen the rules of, like the basic rules of film broken in front of you. First of all, in that sequence, like the, sh- the shot of him running around making that noise. There's a, there's a little bit where he just screams for a little bit too yeah. long. Ah, that's, that's like what I find so funny. It's just like, like he knocked on my, like Walt Disney knocked on my brain and go, you, you'll like this. The fact that he appears, disappears off one side of the frame and appears on another. And as much as that now to us seems logical because we're used to the Looney Tunes, we're, loose, we're used to like the Animaniacs, we're used to the, like, the idea that animation can break those rules. 
That has never happened before in Disney animation, where all of a sudden a character is aware of itself within, not only that it's aware that an audience is there, but it's aware that it is a character on a film frame and that it can break the rules of that and then just fucking disappear. Just go. It just appears, changes its costume, screams, runs around, and then disappears again. And yeah, I'm to be honest, I have watched that sequence three times a day, every day, the, for the last three weeks while I've been researching this film. I'll just sit there at work doing my work, and all of a sudden I'll just just put up the YouTube video of watching the Adokwan run around and have a giggle to myself. The the moment that I relate, relate the most to Donald is when after the Adokwans finish singing, Donald giggles to himself and slaps his knee. And I'm like, yes, we are, I am, I'm with you on that. That is that is entertaining. What, what's the bird's name? The Adokwan. Oh, okay. Oh, so the character doesn't have a name. It's no, just the name of the bird. No. Right. And I even tried to research the, the bird itself. And it's very hard to find out. It's So it's it's inspired by a, a bird that's all through South America, but Araqua is the name that the Brazilians give it. But I couldn't find on the internet definite like a definite um, definition of what that species of bird actually is. It's more what it is in folklore, um, in Brazilian folklore, of being this like this creature of mischief that just runs around and causes trouble. Perfect. Um, they nailed it. And they nail it because that's exactly what he does. And then like in the next, in when we get to Bahia, he does exactly the same thing. Like in the middle of Joe delivering a speech to kind of like, like in the 50,000 times he says, have you ever been to Bahia? <laughs> I, I and then says that, the word Bahia. Yeah. Um, that, have you, you know, been to Bahia? <laughs> and he's like, no, no. <laughs> just no every time. But that, you know, he's in the middle of kind of introducing this next sequence and the Araquan turns up, steals his cigar and runs off the edge of the frame of the film, runs around for a bit, pulls it back in and then disappears again. The third sequence in the film is where the three caballeros leaves the essential principles of Saludos Amigos behind and moves into revolutionary territory. After the success of the Aquera do Brasil sequence, it was decided to return to Brazil for the new film and follow a similar form. It would once again be driven by Brazilian music and by the artwork of Mary Blair, who had now assumed the role of the lead visual artist on the film. The first part represents a romantic view of Salvador, the capital of Bahia, after which Joe and Donald jump on a train to visit Bahia themselves. This sequence is the most direct translation of Mary Blair's artwork, mirroring her two-dimensional and highly colourful style. It also features a return appearance of the Araquan. When Donald and Joe arrive in Bahia though, the film takes a very different visual direction. The combination of live action and animation wasn't a new concept, even for Walt Disney, but the possibilities for the process were limited. In mid-1942, Walt Disney approached Aurora Miranda, sister of singer Karma Miranda and acclaimed on her own right, to appear in the film. She would be paired with another song by Ari Barriosa and would appear on screen interacting with Donald and Joe. To begin with, a rear projection process was used for the combination scenes. The animation was completed first, then projected using the rear projection process with Miranda standing in front of it and reshot. This proved an enormously difficult process and while Miranda was in focus, the animation inevitably lost a lot of detail. One of Walt's earliest collaborators, Ub Iwerks, came up with a solution. Iwerks had returned to the studio in 1940, heading a new special effects department. He developed an optical printer that allowed for a number of elements to be combined with the film without multiple exposures. Not only did this mean that the animation could still be in focus, but that animated action could happen in the foreground as well. 
It was a radical invention, allowing for Miranda, her band and dancers to interact even more with the animated environment and characters. So the Bahia sequence, which is the return to Brazil, because after Acuarela do Brazil, they just were like, you know, we have to go back and like repeat the success of that. Do they do that? Is this as successful a sequence as the one in Saludos Amigos? I think it's better. Really? Yeah. Why? I just enjoyed the the mix of live action with the animation. That was fantastic. And the device of, uh, <laughs> another framing device, of going into the book and stepping out of the book. Oh, it's just sort of like Inception when you think. It's a little bit like Inception when you think about it. So they're, they're coming out of this or entering this book. It unfolds. You see these people, these humans dancing in it. And then they're dancing in an animated environment as well. I, so I watched three, the Three Caballeros again before I started researching and then I watched it again after. And it's one of the few times I've approached any of the films in this process and my opinion of the film changed completely upon the second viewing based on my knowledge about the making of the film. Because really, as The Three Caballeros as a film on its own is good. It has some good moments. It also kind of feels like it drags its feet at points and overstays its welcome at, at you know, in oh, some, it was definitely too long. Certainly by comparison to how Swift Salute as Amigos is. From a, as a technical achievement, it's astounding. Yes, the combining animation and love action isn't new. It's something that hasn't been done before, but you're literally watching a, um, a technique develop over the course of the film. Not over the course of many films, but the first time you see the combination animation where you can see the um, the restrictions of what they're doing, of having it re- done in rear projection, which looks bizarre and doesn't quite work. 30 seconds later, they've now developed a new process. And you can see through this and through uh, La Pinata, you can see the process, you can see them becoming more confident in what they can do. Though I would actually still say that the that the I think the live action sequence in Bay is the best one. The one with um with Aurora Miranda is the the strongest because it's the most dynamic. It doesn't feel like it overstays its welcome. It feels like it's telling a story and it's building to something like the point where she's inciting the city itself to dance. It's just joyous. And it makes sense within the framing device of them stepping into the book, particularly also because it comes after the, the train sequence, which is just so beautiful. And we get to see the Araquan again. Something I really enjoyed in this is just the mix and variety of animation styles as well, which you don't really get to see in any Disney film. It's just one style throughout. But this was great to sort of see it more as, it really allowed yourself to see it more as art. Yeah. Um, Yeah, which, which was the best thing from both of these films. Yeah, and the, like the, the train sequence in particular is the point where, apart from the um, the children at Christmas during La Pinata, it's the point where you can see Mary Blair's influence at its app, like it's it's unfiltered. It's exactly it's exactly everything that you associate with her as an artist, and everything that they were celebrating with her as an artist. And her fingerprints are all over this film, and are all over Disney films for the next ten years. Those opening landscapes of Bahia were just. Genuinely, like beautiful, and I really, I just really zoned in on on this ending sequence because yeah. it was just it was just great. If the three caballeros ended at the Aurora Miranda sequence, if it ended with her dancing, it would have been a terrific ending. Yeah. Not to say the ending of the film itself, as it is, isn't terrific because it is a thing on its of its of its own. But that it's it's such a success. The second half of, like, particularly the second half of Bahia is such a success that it could have ended there. Yeah, you would have missed out on Mexico. If and you then you would, yeah, have, missed out then on you would have had very upset Mexico. Very, yeah. And, and, you know, you can tell that 
that's the point where you can see them going like we 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 have to we've missed someone in this project we need to acknowledge them and one of the things that i found really um quite incredible in researching these films the reason these films were made the process the political circumstances under which they were made it flies so strongly in the face of the way those countries are treated politically now the idea of we need to establish a good relationship with our neighbors in South America and Mexico and create a cultural exchange with them and create, and like not just cultural exchange, but also an exchange of resources. Of course, they're trying to fight the Nazis, but it also is like, it's a policy, <laughs> but it's a policy that exists before the realization that Nazis were starting to have a stronghold in South America. You contrast that with now, and it's both beautiful and heartbreaking. That there was a point where America was aware of its aware of its neighbors enough that it wanted to establish good relationships with them, and that these films, I mean, we're kind of jumping towards the end of the film, really, but that these films celebrate that union when right now that union is being completely obliterated. It could really do with this program returning. <laughs> yeah, but which you know, considering you know the fact that America has absolutely no interest in the arts, full stop, um, at the moment in their administration, unlikely. But it it becomes quite moving, and also becomes quite moving to see, like when you see the sequence in Bay with all of the with the with the dancers, that it's clearly not white American people pretending to do it. Like they're, they're, the music is in their language. Like that's another really beautiful thing about when Joe is introduced in, in Saludos Amigos, he's speaking entirely in Portuguese, no subtitles. It takes a good while before he actually speaks in English. Um, that those things are being embraced and celebrated as opposed to being whitewashed and dumbed down for the sake of an American audience. I did, I did really enjoy it, the train sequence um, that they enter the train, they, you know, travel through all these landscapes and then they they leave the station, which is in the book, come out of the book, turn the page and they're at Bahia, which yeah. made the whole train sequence pointless. Yeah. Because <laughs> they could have just hopped out, turned the, the page. But then they wouldn't have had, you know, all that beautiful animation. And then the Araquan coming back. But, but it was a nice sort of like, we know what we're doing here. Yeah. And uh, it may seem pointless, but, you know, we're going to amaze you with our animation. And if this was a short... It wouldn't have done that because it only has eight minutes. And this is the point where you get to Bahia is where you can see the film is now going, it now is embracing the fact that it knows it's a feature and not thinking that it's a series of shorts that need to be cobbled together. And that leads very much into La Piñata because La Piñata, there is no way in hell that could ever have worked as a short film because it's so fucking big. Um, technically, artistically, in a way, it's one of the bravest up until this point in Disney Animation's evolution. It's one of the bravest things they've done because it does reach the point where it doesn't even have any logical sense. As technically impressive as Bahia was, it was nothing compared with what was to come. Though technically not part of South America, there had been plans to feature Mexico in the Good Neighbor films from the beginning. As with the Brazilian sequences, the Mexican sequence would be led by the music. For the introduction of the new character Panchito, a raucous, gun-toting Mexican rooster, a song by Manuel Esperón was used, now with English lyrics by Ray Gilbert and renamed The Three Caballeros. The song, originally about the relationship between the Mexican state of Jalisco and the capital city of Guadalajara, was now reframed as a statement on hemispheric unity, represented by a Mexican, Panchito, a Latin American, Joe Carioca, and a North American, Donald Duck. The sequence was animated by Ward Kimball and shattered the rules of Disney animation at the time. 
It was explosive, energetic, anarchic, chaotic and self-aware, with moments of characters exiting one side of the frame and entering on another, extreme manipulation of object and form, and even pushing against the walls of the film frame itself. Rather than shocked, Walt Disney adored it. In 1969, Kimball called the sequence the only animation I can look back on with pride. La Pinata also pushed the boundaries of combination scenes even further. On their journey on the flying Sarape, Panchito introduces Donald and Joe to the sights and sounds of Mexico. They fly to Acapulco Beach, where an uncomfortably lustful Donald chases the women on the beach, interacting directly with live action objects in a real environment. The film then enters a dreamlike landscape, with singer Dora Luz singing a new English version of a song by Agustin Lara, now entitled You Belong to My Heart. Donald pursues Dora, her face floating through animated environments. With the entrance of dancer Carmen Molina, the film elevates once more a surreal landscape of dancing cacti and striking silhouettes, before culminating in an insane collision of sight, sound and colour, with Donald as a raging bull, even stranger combinations of animation and live action, and finally fireworks, where red, white and blue sparkles spell out the end in all three languages used in the film. Nothing like the work in La Piñata had ever been seen before. Animation pushed into unexpected and overwhelming directions. If Saludos Amigos had been charming and modest in its execution, The Three Caballeros completely embraced its theatrical opportunities, for better or worse. I'm trying to remember the transition because that's what I was really impressed by um, in this film. Was it when Donald Duck was a waveform? They open the present from Mexico. Then the soundtrack sequence from Fantasia comes back bizarrely. And then you see the waveform of the, of the music, but it's, it's emulating the guitars. It's emulating the drums. And then Donald gets thrown into it. And then he starts. And then out of the waveform bursts. Panchito with his the, with his revolver sh- shooting everything shooting inside. guns yeah yeah which is and his energy because you know you have Donald who is tempest- tempestuous and you have Jose Carioca who's suave as hell and then you have Panchito walk in who's just got so much unbridled energy and in some ways only because he's in the film could the film become as nuts as it does become and not just the film it's also the, the way the character like Donald is interested in women in Bahia yes. but goes to a next the next level when we get to uh, <laughs> Mexico when he gets to Acapulco Beach which is a beach full of women that he just chases around with a blindfold yeah they run away from him desperately and then they they remove Donald they jump on their magic carpet the ma- sarape the magic sarape sorry <laughs> and Donald is furious that they're leaving. Like he's genuinely upset and angry. He's not like disappointed. He's angry. Which is the only thing I found in these films uncomfortable because you're like, Donald is not a character used to, or any, like lust is not a characteristic you think of to that extent. Like being Twitterpated, like in Bambi, is one thing, but this is like, and you know, when he gets to You Belong to My Heart, where you have um, Dora Luz floating through the air as a flat, and like there's that shot where it's her face in his eyes which feels this is the point like of all the things that make this feel less like disney and more like something that might happen out of a looney tunes cartoon that's the donald's lustfulness and how uncomfortably full-on it is 
is the one thing in this film that just feels the least like a Disney film. And I did kind of sit there watching it. I know that that critical response to the film at the time was kind of taken aback by by Donald's, you know, libido. Um, that you sit there and just kind of go, this. Where did this come from? Who thought this was a good idea? It did feel very Looney Tunes. I really loved that that sequence where the Panchito is holding a really high note for too long, and uh, Donald and Joe are just desperately trying to shut him up. With like, at one point, they even grow plants around yeah, him and then set him on fire. They cut the they cut a square in the floor around him so that he can fall to the floor. But instead of him falling to the floor, the floor falls. <laughs> And they fall with it. It's just like gag, 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 gag. Yeah. And it's it's just so great. I'm surprised it didn't explode, but they were about to shoot cannons at him. I yes. Think. Yeah. Well, and also it can't because that's where the ending's gonna come. Like it's got the ending is gonna be literal explosions. The thing that's so thrilling and confusing about Three Caballeros is the way that the last act of the film just escalates and escalates and escalates. The framing device falls away. You have no point of reference to know what it is that you're seeing or where you're going. There are moments of calm, like when they fly on the Serape into the book and they go and fly through Mexico. But then, you know, ending with um, ending with Carmen Molina um, dancing with the cactus and tra- like the way that she transforms and the way that Donald comes and interacts with that, um, particularly after the Dora La sequence of her flying through the air is like a flower. But even the way that that splits and fractures and the song falls apart and then that was like those bizarre things like you can like seeing Donald and um Joe and Panchito with women's legs and 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 the feathers like it's like the entire sense of the film just um collapses um it's like the pink elephants on parade sequence in Dumbo but like but times a hundred I guess in a way all the cultures become one conscience and, cu- and burst of colour. The unexpectedly moving thing about the end of Three Caballeros, which is that once you have these three characters together, and also the, the lyrics of, this, of the song itself, of this idea of hemispheric unity, and that by the film in a way collapsing the way that it does, it brings all of these various elements together that you've explored over the course of this film. And at the end, they they erupt into fireworks of red, white, and blue where the three languages come together with the yeah. words for the end. I guess by the end of it, it doesn't matter what lessons you're learning. They're just together. And the last image that we have in the film before the fireworks ending is Joe and Donald and Panchito arm in arm yeah. together. And the song reflecting that exact um that exact sentiment. I think maybe I like the ending more now that we've sort of dissected it a little <laughs> yeah, bit. More. A little bit. Yeah. Um, because, it, but the, at the, the same time, it is an overwhelming experience to watch, even with our understanding about other animated forms of animation outside of Disney and the way that chaos and insanity have been embraced in other anima- animated forms. And to a certain extent, like, you know, talking about Aladdin, like you can see a direct line from this film straight to the friend like me sequence or the whole concept of the genie in Aladdin or the entire texture of the Emperor's New Groove makes complete sense when you think about it in relation to the three caballeros. In a way, the package films that follow this feel inadequate by comparison to these films because they don't embrace the madness anywhere near as well and for as um, strong a purpose as this film does. This feels from a an historical perspective in terms of the wider story of Disney animation, this p- film in particular, you feel like you're watching an art form advance in real time. With all the other films, you're watching them, like each one is a leap. This is 
like it's happening before your eyes. Like just the combination process where you start with it being, you know, where it starts from Aurora Miranda standing in front of a rear projection and the end it's many levels of animation in real life all interacting and colliding with one another, moving through space together, that you've just watched a group of artists grow in confidence in what they're doing. And for a good purpose, for a film that has its sentiment, for all of its flaws, its sentiment is honest. Yeah, you definitely um, walk away feeling like at least they tried. I mean, that sounds quite cold and <laughs> and like they haven't achieved anything, but it's but it's incredible that these films were made for that purpose yeah. and uh, they were successful. Do you think they are a respectful and compassionate representation of Latin American culture both then and now? Definitely then. I feel like they could have done a little bit more with those cultures that we were talking about before, but I think that's what will happen naturally when you have a pot of different cultures, each of them wanting the same amount of attention. But, but I, I think so as a 1940s me. <laughs> I feel like you'd, you'd only get a real response from someone who saw these films um, in that time of the same intention, if that makes sense, because then maybe, that would have, maybe these films would have swayed them about how they felt about America or how they felt about the Nazis. Well, evidence suggests that that's exactly what they did. I mean, this, as much as Three Caballeros was not a success in America, it was a huge success in Latin America. Um, they did embrace it. And, and, you know, and this, this was under the understanding. They were like, well, we're going to get another one. So the other countries that thought they weren't going to get represented were like, oh, well, obviously you're going to pick us up in the third one because there was always every intention to make one. Do you think they're still relevant now? Do you think they still have um, power, um, the power to entertain and the power to impress and move now? Uh, not in terms of pace. I think it's just too slow. Uh, they're still impressive, but I don't think they've, particularly with Donald's Lust for Women, I don't think it's aged well. Aside from it being something you could watch and appreciate for the, for the animation of that time, it's not something I would show my nephew, for instance. There are much better films like, um, I know this is totally different culturally, but uh, Coco is a great example of... Yeah. Uh, a full-length feature that that actually immerses itself in the culture and is about that without without it feeling like it's sort of teaching you from one perspective. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the risk with these films. At the, at the end of the day, they're, they're teaching tools as much as they're, you know, masquerading it as entertainment. I mean, with El Gaucho Goofy, as much as it is tremendously entertaining, it is, it's, it's, a how, it's an educational film. It's about it's, it's their job is to teach to teach Americans about Latin American culture. I mean, these were not even intended to be released in Latin America. It was only because of how well the tour went that they decided to do that. Do you know much about the TV series that was then made? No, I think it's I think the TV series is very recent. Right. I don't, and I think it's, I wonder what that is about. Like, what is that supposed to sort of build bridges between allies? <laughs> I actually, I that is actually a good point. I don't know there's at least one series that's not in English. So potentially, particularly in the 40s, the idea of a character from a Disney film or a Disney Disney animation full stop representing a culture other than America is very strange. For uh, Brazil and for Mexico, having Jose Carioca and um, Panchito were a big deal. That, and that was one of the reasons why you know, all the other countries were, were annoyed that they didn't get their own. And Mexico kind of pressured Disney into kind of giving them. And I know that for the development of the third film with Cuba, Cuba were like, so we're going to get our, our own Jose Carioca, right? 
to see your culture represented in the pri- in one of the primary um, forms of popular entertainment in the world at the time and certainly is now would be a big deal. So no, actually, I, I should probably I would be intrigued to go back and look at the the show and see what they've done with these characters. As with Saludos Amigos, the world premiere of The Three Caballeros took place outside of the US, this time in Mexico City on the 21st of December 1944, seven years to the day after the world premiere of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. It was rapturously received by both critics and audiences and played for three months at the Almeida Theatre to packed houses, often accompanied by a live show featuring Dora Luz and Carmen Molina. It premiered in the US in New York City on the 3rd of February 1945, and its reception was mixed. Some critics found it charming, Variety calling it a new form of cinematic entertainment, while others found it garish and ridiculous. Walcott Gibbs in The New Yorker calling it a mixture of atrocious taste, bogus mysticism, and authentic fantasy guaranteed to baffle any critic not hopelessly enchanted by the word Disney. Even those who had praised the studio in the past found Caballero's hard to stomach, criticising its oral and visual insanity and Donald's uncharacteristic lustfulness. The film also didn't perform nearly as well at the box office as its predecessor, certainly compared to the enormous cost of the film. A number of the songs from the film also became enormous hits though, even the title number, and have endured in the public consciousness more so than the film itself. The film was also nominated for two Oscars for score and sound recording. Both Saludos Amigos and The Three Caballeros would have a strong cultural legacy, albeit not necessarily in their original form. In 1955, many of the sequences were excised from the film and released individually, and an edited version of Caballeros premiered on television in December 1954, retitled A Present for Donald. The characters, including the Adequan, would appear over the years in other Disney short subjects, particularly in the education films in the 1950s, many of which were influenced by the storytelling techniques developed in Saludos Amigos. The films have also enjoyed rediscovery and reassessment, especially thanks to home video. The Three Caballeros in particular is now admired for its enormous technical and stylistic inventiveness. So, to finish up our conversation, uh, the important question at the end of every episode. The ultimate question. The ultimate question. Mm. Uh, what is your favourite Disney animated classic? Uh, well, I really love sequences in Aladdin. I think, it'll, I think it has to be The Lion King. Yeah. Not, not because I love it as much as I do uh, now when I, did, when I was a kid, if that yeah. makes sense. I loved it more when I was six. Yeah. But because it was the first Disney film I'd ever watched. Yeah. And there were so many... Um, parts of it that had a huge impact on my development, essentially. How much has Disney been a part of your development, both as a person and as an artist? Is, have they been present in your life consistently or were they something that you had as a kid and rediscovered as an adult or rediscovered through through your wife, Chris? Yeah, I think in terms of entertainment, um, it's really influenced me quite quite a bit um, now having a, a more adult uh, objective point of view of my own work yeah. and how Disney played into that. Um, I think as a as a kid, I remember it being uh, it, when watching fil- those films. I, I remember feeling really um, comforted. Yeah. I remember watching The Lion King. <laughs> this is not going to segue well from me being comforted, but I remember <laughs> watching Scar yeah. and really wanting to be Scar. 
I don't know why, but I really loved that, um, the scar that he had on his eye. And I remember desperately wanting a scar on my eye to the point that I would fall over intentionally to get a scar on my eye. Oh, my God. Not because I wanted the pain, but because I wanted to look like that. And I just loved- Like a badass Harry Potter. Yeah. I wanted to look- yeah, maybe it was like a, a coping mechanism. Maybe I wanted to be stronger than I actually was. But I picked the wrong character, really, when you think about I mean, it. He's I should have picked Simba. He's the best character he in The is, Lion King. It really made me appreciate bad guys in films because they're always so much more interesting. Like, forget Simba. Scar's the star of The Lion King. Oh, totally, 100%. Yeah, he's incredible. Again, not the CG one. I feel like this is going to be... the. Um, a reference or a drop in every episode. Your hate for live the sorry, not live action, the CG redos of oh, Disney no. films. No, like whatever they exist. <laughs> I'm trying as much as like I am trying as much as possible. It's funny. I try as much as possible never to bring them up. And every time the guests are like, "Oh," and then there's the remakes. I'm like, we don't. Remake. <laughs> well, I think at this point, I had a look at the list of what other guests have said. I think that means The Lion King is now in the lead oh, for gosh. the favorite Disney film on. Ink and paint. Yeah. But we've still got many more films to go. Um, thank you so much for being a guest on this episode, for sharing your um, thoughts and your stories and your um, passion with us. <laughs> My emotion. Your emotion. My childhood. Yes. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for being a guest with us on Ink and Paint. Thank you for having me. I hope it's easy to edit. Around the time of the release of The Three Caballeros, work began on the third Good Neighbour feature. This time, they would give special attention to Cuba, with a number of teams sent to gather research material. Tentatively titled Carnival, this third film would have focused on Carnival celebrations in many of the Latin American countries. With the end of the Second World War, though, activities by the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs had started to wind down. The Good Neighbour Initiative had achieved its purpose, and along with the tepid box office to Caballeros, there didn't seem to be a need for a third film. Carnival was eventually abandoned, but many of its ideas endured. The most immediate legacy of the two Good Neighbour films was their suggestion of a new kind of feature film, a collection of short subjects that was much quicker and cheaper to produce than the elaborate Golden Age films. Now that the war was over and their government contracts had expired, Walt Disney Productions was not in a financial position to pursue feature filmmaking, even though a number of projects, including The Wind in the Willows, Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, were still in development. The idea of a package film seemed much more achievable. Walt was also intrigued by the possibilities Caballeros had opened up with combining live action and animation, a process that seemed to lend itself to another long gestating project, his adaptation of the Uncle Remus stories of Joel Chandler Harris, Song of the South. In the meantime, Disney feature animation would enter its most peculiar period, with a series of four films that represented an unexpected intersection between the Good Neighbor films and Fantasia, making use of abandoned ideas from both. For the next few years, Disney animation would be forced to survive in the form of the package films. In the office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs asked us to make Plutus Amigos, we had one purpose, to make a picture both Americas would like, so that in the end, they would like one another better. I think up to now, we've all been thinking of the barriers between the Americas, distance and different languages and different backgrounds. And now, rather suddenly, 
we see that these things don't matter. Our backgrounds are different, but our future, we know, has to be the same. The cowboy and the gaucho understand each other because both of them ride the plains as free men, not slaves. And Donald Duck and Joe Carioca will always be friends, I believe, because they're both grand, independent spirits, meant for the pleasure of people who are not afraid to laugh. We're just beginning to appreciate the variety, the color, and charm of life in the other Americas. It's lucky for us. There are no islands, someone has said. You may even say there are no continents. There's only a world. While half of this world is being forced to shout, Heil Hitler, our answer is to say, Salutus Amigos. On the next episode of Ink and Paint. I had an idea that I would really like to write a a book about the short Disney cartoons of the 1930s. And I was naive enough to think that I could just walk into the Disney archives and start working. I'll be joined by esteemed Disney historian J.B. Kaufman to talk about the first three package films, Make My Music, Fun and Fancy Free, and Melody Time. Thanks to Joven for joining me on this episode. You can find out more information about Lessons with Lewis at LessonsWithLewis.com, Lewis spelt L-U-I-S, and you can follow Joven on Twitter at Jovanini. Be sure to check out the show notes on this episode at incompaint.com.au for more information about the making of the Good Neighbor films, including concept art and animation sketches, links to reconstructions of deleted material, and information about the history of the films on home video. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Hit us up with your comments, questions, and even memories of your favorite Disney films, and we'll be sure to share them on our upcoming episodes. You can email daniel at incompaint.com.au or find me on Twitter at Daniel Lamon. We release new episodes every fortnight, as well as bonus in-betweeners every now and then. So if you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, and don't forget to tell your friends. Ink and Paint was created, hosted, and written by myself, Daniel Lamon, and produced and edited by Alex Amster. Original music is composed by Sam Porter. The show artwork is designed by Nicholas Piranakis, with episode illustrations by Lily Meek, and the podcast is released through Switch, maketheswitch.com.au. Join in next time on Ink and Paint to continue our journey through the Disney animated classics. I did enjoy as I press play on Disney Plus for this film, that it warned me. It said contains tobacco depictions. Yes. So just I, in case. I was warned just in case. Um, just in case I want to now start smoking cigars because I saw a bird do it. <laughs> <laughs> you saw a very cool bird do it. <laughs>